Well, first off, I want to say thanks a lot for coming on here. I, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to to come on. Um, you you have, were uh, you've always been one of those guys that were was I think integral in kind of um, propelling the tech P career field to kind of the next level. You know, you came in, um, <clears throat> and we'll get to it in a minute. But I remember you came in as 18th ASOG commander, and it was everybody was like, "Wow, how's this going to work? It's a CCT guy, but he's a." Right you know, he's going to be our commander. And it was kind of, everybody was kind of apprehensive. And I, I think it worked out well. I, th I thought it was um, not to, not any disparaging against anybody that came before you or after or anything, but it was kind of a mix up, a shake up that I, I think kind of worked out for us. You know, I think it was beneficial by by every, every uh, stretch, you know. So um, I just want to say thanks again for coming on and what you've done for the career field. I think it's awesome. Um, how, how you been? I, I haven't seen it. It's been a while. So uh, how's things going? Well, you know, uh, we all we all uh, progress in our phases of, uh, of life. And I'm in the uh, probably the I'm still I'm at the end of now my contractor phase where, you know, government service for uh, 35 years. And then uh, what do you do after that? Uh, because you haven't really grown up yet, uh, <laughs> and people ask you, um, "Are you retired or are you not?" Well, of course, you're you're not really going to be retired, retired, but you want a kind of a lifestyle that that matches that. And um, because I wanted to keep eating and feeding my family, I decided to that I would be a contractor and do the kinds of things that you know I love doing. Uh, so for a while, I was helping cities and counties uh, in their city management and county management, um, you know, safety kind of advisor, um, program advisor, those kinds of things. Um, and I liked it uh, because a lot of good people that are serving our cities and our counties and our small towns and out there because, you know, all politics are local and right. local people are really running the government where they live i like that because it is it is americana if you will and all communities are a little different uh, they're not all exactly the same but they all have exactly. the same we need to take care of the citizens that live here and the people who vote and the people who pay taxes and so i liked working with cities and counties but you know my love is for uh, national security and uh, military stuff. So I came back and Pete Donnelly offered me a position at Lidos uh, as a contractor. And so I've been doing that since 2016, uh, basically, and oh, trying wow. to help, you know, our, our business, the air ground business, if you will, uh, for the Air Force. Right. Um, and we've had some struggles programming wise. Our business is going to take a pretty big cut here uh, in manpower. I'm concerned about that uh, because I was yeah. trying to grow it. <laughs> you know, now we're in this period where we're reducing that uh, force structure. And of course, I don't want to be a doomsday person, but I go, well, uh, we do that at risk. And I mean, the government does that at risk because you just right. can't create, you know, JTACs. Attack P force structure. You can't create just like a soft force structure. You can't create that overnight. And so when you get rid of it or a part of it, even if you realize that you've made a mistake, 
it takes you a while to fix the mistake. It you because right. you can get there overnight. You can't have great people, um, then cut half of them out, and then expect that you can just snap your fingers and uh, great people will appear again. Now we have a little head start because we've done some of this before, but it's still painful. So I feel it. Sure. I, I feel the pain because I see it um, and because I've gone through it before. But I'm still worried about yeah. the business. I'm, wor I'm worried about the great people that are in the business and um, who are great American heroes in my mind. And uh, we'll talk about many, many of them in my pitch because they made my career. In other words, without them. The combat control, special tactics, TACP, battlefield weather, or strategic reconnaissance. Without those folks, uh, Mike Longoria doesn't have a career. I mean, it's, <laughs> right. that, that, if you know what I mean, that it just without without all those great folks, um, uh, I actually probably would have had no purpose <laughs> in in the Air Force. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, so that. Um, that's what I've been doing, if you will, for the last um, 10 years. Um, okay. Basically. Yeah, you sent, uh, I, I was just reading up on you, and um, I, I want to just cover some things first before we get into your military career, because what you've done since you've gotten out, and, and some things you, you did, but non-military type stuff, that just, was just amazing. Like, for instance, you have, you have three master's degrees, air power, art, and science, national security and strategic studies, and public communications, and you got your bachelor's in political science. Um, you've been an author and a contributor to several books, peer-reviewed articles, publications. Um, you restorate several conference papers and conduct several presentations and lectures and senior executive fellow to the JFK uh, um, School of Government at Harvard, which is, <laughs> that's crazy. That's amazing. Um, senior visiting fellow and special uh, policy analyst for the Congressional Research Service for Foreign Affairs, International Trade and Technology at the Library of Congress. I mean, we're talking about like... <clears throat> Like high, like national level things, like seriously high level things uh, that are is just amazing. Um, some other things that I was in, that really was interesting to me. Um, special analytical service to the federal government. You were national academics and science and engineering, uh, defense advanced research uh, projects agency, as we know as DARPA, um, developmental labs incorporated, and then. The, what was really kind of encompasses my view of you is like your memberships, like your um, international city and county um, management association, which is kind of what you're talking about as far as like the, the local level right. um, government type stuff, the, where it all kind of happens, where, where, where real government matters at that level. Um, Colorado, Texas municipal leagues, U.S. Hispanic Leadership Institute, Harvard Executive Fellows, alumni, um, American Red Cross, Special Operations Forces, Warrior Foundation, Air Commando Association, and last but certainly not least, the TACP Association, which I think is a testament to your uh, dedication to, like you were saying, like all battlefield airmen, but also you had that, you you touched the TACP career field in a way that was like, you haven't forgotten it. You know, you kind of stuck with us and, and I really appreciate that stuff. So that's, in a nutshell, that's some stuff you've done since you've been out, um, what, which is amazing. But I, also the other things I'd like to talk on were the things you did when you were in. I mean, just... And I think a lot of us know you as, you know, the boss and the general or the colonel or uh, in those regard. But um, I'm really interested in, you know, early guy, the early 
you know, like Lieutenant Longoria and that, that kind of thing. So if you want to, if you could um, take us back to what got you into the military in the first place, and then maybe take us through like, um, uh, you know, like Panama and Desert Storm, Desert Shield, that kind of thing, and just kind of let us kind of figure out where you were, where you started and give us a better picture of like, you know, where you came from, that kind of thing. Sure. I'd be happy to. So there is a, over the last five to six years in our society, we've come up with this weird term, uh, privilege. Uh, you know, who has privilege, who doesn't have privilege, et, et, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, I don't want to get right. uh, a political uh, because if you were to ask me the question, was I born with privilege? Did I have privilege? My answer would be absolutely. I had more privilege than than you can possibly describe. And I, I don't feel guilty about it because it, it it is what it is. So my parents were 17 and 18 when they had me. They were um, very good students in, um, in Houston, Texas. They both went to San Jacinto High School where they met each other and apparently were very attracted to each other. <laughs> and um, my mom was a very, very uh, white, Scotch Irish uh, background, um, uh, very Methodist. Uh, my father was a very, very dark uh, Mexican uh, Catholic uh, person. Um, and those were my parents. Uh, and so if you ask me, do, do I have privilege? I guarantee you I had privilege because of my parents. Yeah. Um, and they were teenagers when they had me. I cannot imagine right. having uh, all the children that I've had. Uh, I can't imagine having them when I was a teenager. Like it, it, no. it, 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 it's unbelievable. They have remained, right. uh, they've both passed away, but they have remained the smartest, wisest people that I've ever known. And so when people... You know, who did you follow and who who were the great leaders in your in your life, et cetera, et cetera. And, and there are a bunch. But number one were my parents um, who did everything in the world for me that you could possibly um, possibly do. Um, you know, they didn't have much money, but uh, they bought me an encyclo uh, an entire encyclopedia. When I was four years old, of course, I couldn't read it then. I was, uh, you know, but but I grew up with an entire encyclopedia in my room. Uh, I mean, what kid gets that? Um, so let's just say I was born, in my view, uh, with privilege. I had great grandparents, uh, wonderful grandparents that were probably making that cultural shift. I don't know if there was any kind of racism or or bias against Mexicans or I, I have no idea. I never saw it okay. growing up. And so I feel privileged to have grown up uh, the way I did. And that was in Houston, Texas, sure. uh, had great schools, great teachers and great coaches. 
Um, and that's why when I, I, I feel guilty of the way some people talk about privilege, because I go, yeah, I, I have privilege. I, I had uh, because of my parents, mostly. And all the right. coaches and teachers um, that, that helped get me into the military. And most of my teachers, arguably, um, were amazed that I wanted to go into the military. They had oh, really? plans for me. You know, uh, you okay. could be a lawyer. I don't, I don't think I could have been a lawyer because, or, you know, a doctor or anything. I'm really, I, to be honest with you, I have privilege, but I'm not that smart. Uh, I mean, that's my assessment. I've been around a lot of smart people, but I don't consider myself, you know, all that, uh, uh, all that smart. But it is helpful. When you grow up with a lot of smart people around you, oh, um, sure. it's it's very helpful. That's why I feel uh, privileged in in that regard. So um, uh, I I think I, I like I like how humble you are, but obviously you're you're very smart. So, uh, but yeah, this is but this is a testament to you and how you are, and you're just you're such a humble guy that you know uh, you have a lot of humility and you you are very appreciative of the guys around you. But well, no, I appreciate it. Uh, I did have. Um, some particular teachers, uh, one uh, biology teacher that knew that this is what I, I wanted to do, uh, make it to the Air Force Academy. And so um, they, uh, I had teachers helping me, you know, helping me determine, uh, you know, what, you know, I tried to take all of the math that I could in high school, you know, uh, mm -hmm. up through, you know, what at the time was, um, analytic geometry and calculus one and two and I, I want because for the academy that that helps you if you will to have that kind of um, math mathematics as a background uh, they care about the other part too but the, the the math background is very helpful and so I went yeah and I I'm not saying I was good at it I'm just saying I liked it I mean I, I liked math and, and and understood all of that uh, so uh, they helped me. And then in high school, I was most mostly an athlete. Uh, so I played football, uh, basketball, nice. baseball, ran track and cross country. So, okay. and, and I, I loved it. Matter, matter of fact, when I look back at high school, I have to tell you that um, it, it was fun. I, I, I loved, I, I loved high school almost as much as being a brand new combat control officer uh, in the military as a second lieutenant at Holbrook <laughs> Field. Uh, high school was that fun for me. And um, nice. I had a great high school. I had great teammates on my football team. I had the two, I was the quarterback for the, for the team. And uh, we had done very well. I had the two best running backs. I had great wide receivers. Uh, and um, a lot of the players from that team went on to play pros and it's not often in really? high school because it was Texas football. So, you know, Texas oh, yeah, high school yeah. football is a, is, is a little uh, different. Uh, you know I mean? It's a big yeah, deal yeah. In, in the state yeah, of yeah. Texas. And um, one of my best friends of all time is a, is a lawyer now in Houston and he was an all American uh, linebacker at Dartmouth. 
so, you know, when okay. I was at the Air Force Academy, he was becoming an All-American at Dartmouth. And um, wow. uh, another one of the line was um, played for the New York Jets, and we had um, someone that played for the Cleveland uh, Browns, uh, the old huh. Cleveland Browns, not the new yeah. Cleveland Browns. The Cleveland Browns that became the Baltimore Ravens, the, 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 that old oh, right. Cleveland Browns before they were the Ravens. So, oh, okay. So I feel, um, I, I mean, I loved it. I was the, um, the governor for the Texas, Oklahoma district of key clubs. So that's about 450 key clubs in Oklahoma and Texas. And so after wow. the football season, I literally was traveling every weekend to some uh, town in Texas or Oklahoma uh, to to speak at a key club, and that that literally changed. I would say changed my it it changed everything uh, that I know because you met a lot of Kiwanians, uh that were really good. You know, it's a service club, and I loved it. Right. No, uh, that's why a lot of my teachers thought that I would be good. At law, I should go to the University of Texas and go to the University of Texas Law School and then become a politician. But they really didn't know me well enough. I, while I loved that, um, I was a guy destined to go into the military. I, I don't know yeah. I was because it's, it's what I wanted to do. Um, now, I really wanted to be a yeah. pilot, but uh, I had a really bad car accident my senior year at the Air Force Academy. And, um, oh, really? Yeah, it was uh, pretty bad. So I had about 470 stitches in my face. My uh, neck was broken. Um, I had been unconscious for two or three days. And Whoa. Well, it was a career altering kind of uh, thing. So I was driving from Houston uh, to Colorado Springs. And in 1979 was the worst ice storm that North Texas had experienced. Someone even froze, I think, in that particular uh, cotton bowl in Dallas. And it was this um, weird ice that um, that you can't see. You know, I think they call it clear black ice, whatever. whatever. Um, and you can tell because the trees get wet and they and they kind of they start to fall. They start to fall over, not completely, but the, the weight of the ice is, is so much that all of the trees were bending and literally all over the road and you cannot tell. Uh, and as a typical cadet, a stupid cadet, I was driving back and it normally would be about a 16 hour drive between Houston and Colorado Springs. And you had to really sign, you, you physically had to sign in at that, you know, at, at an hour, you had to be there and physically sign a log. This is, you know, I got here right. at, at, at a certain time. So yeah. it's a, it's a real timeline. It's a real, it's a timeline. And so I would sure. go, oh, you know, it's about 17 hours to that sign. And I got plenty of time. <laughs> okay. Well, that's crazy <laughs> and stupid. Okay, um, yeah. so I hate to admit that I was that irresponsible, but I was. So I was probably driving a little too fast, um, and I was on Highway 287, um, right outside of Fort Worth. 
I really okay. won't forget that part. And then I got to the top of a hill and there was an accident in front of me. I had a little Toyota Celica and I go, okay, what am I going to do? I, this is happening really quickly because if I keep, I'm going to run into the accident. There's no doubt about that. And I'm tapping the brakes a little bit and it's just not, and I'm going downhill. It's just not going to work out well. So I go, uh, even though I got a C in physics, I go, you know, if I put this little silica up, up against the guardrail, you know, it's not going to be good for the car, of course, but um, that'll slow me down. Enough friction, that'll slow me down and everything sure, will be yeah. fine. I'll just have to fix the car later. Apparently, right. my engineering skills weren't. I didn't plan that perfectly. Of course, I didn't have time to plan. And I went over the guardrail and oh, no. uh, about 150 feet down off the bridge. Oh, my gosh. Now, to be honest with you, I don't remember anything after that for about three days. I remember waking up in a hospital. Uh, but I was. Oh, you're lucky to be alive. Yeah. So um, that was almost like if I were a kitty cat. Uh, that would have been number one, you know, life, life <laughs> right. number one. Uh, so it's, yeah. it's my paradigm from being a pilot um, to, even though I'd done everything, you know, I'd done T-41. I was a glider uh, pilot at the academy, you know, gone through the oh, okay. program and done that. So I was pumped and ready to to do it, but it it wasn't going to work out. So then my option were going to missiles or something else. And I went, um, nothing against missiles. We need missiles. Yeah. Uh, but right, right. Missiles is not, that's not for me. I mean, it, it wasn't right. ever going to be for me. And I remember uh, talking to some NCOs that were parachute NCOs at the academy that were combat controllers. And I thought, okay. You know, I think uh, I'd really like to, to do that. And um, I got the, I, you know, I called, I begged, I was begging, begging, calling, begging, calling, calling. We didn't have a selection system uh, back then. So basically one okay. or two people could actually make this kind of decision. And that person was a, a Major Fagerson at uh, uh, MAC headquarters. So I okay. called and begged, called and begged. And he had been academy grad. So I think he kind of, you know, understood and, and boom, I, I get um, a slot at Herbert Field. I mean, I couldn't have. Nice. <laughs> I, I have no idea how that happened. I mean, you know, it's not like I, I went right. through a lot of selection kind of things. And what's the top, this person and top that. No, it just, but how would you like to go to Herbert Field? And at the time I thought, okay, I, I mean, I really didn't know. But when I looked sure, at sure. it, I go, oh my God, that was the, I, I, you couldn't give me a better opportunity than that. I, I love that. Right. I mean, I, I, I loved everything about it as a second lieutenant. Um, yeah gonna become i wasn't a combat controller yet i was gonna be so i got assigned to, to herbert 
before I had been through combat control school, before air okay. control school, before scuba school, before demolition school, before all of that. Yeah. Um, now I'd done jump school and 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 free fall at the academy, so I I, I had that I had that, but that doesn't have anything to do with combat control. So I I, I right. look back at it, and I go, man. I was the luckiest, luckiest person on this planet. And, and why did I get that? I have no idea how, how yeah. I, I mean, that's why I go. Well, I mean, you, you put out the effort, you called and you keep, you know, you, oh, yeah, you, yeah. you showed the guy, yeah. you, you know, how interested you were and, you know, your, you, your tenacity would probably get you through it, you know? So, and, and life at Herbert Field as a second lieutenant, combat controller was so fun. I can't describe it to you. <laughs> So yeah. think about it. I was single. Um, Fort Walton Beach, nice place to go. Yeah. Although I wasn't there a lot because all the training would take me away from Fort Walton Beach. But still, single, sure, sure. Fort Walton Beach, second lieutenant. Uh, nobody works for me at all. So I have literally no responsibilities. And right, I'm literally right. a wet behind the ears second lieutenant. So everything to me, everything was exciting. Everything. Yeah, yeah. One night I'm flying on gunships. Now at the time we had uh, H models and, and A models. So I get to fly on a gunship, you know, and sit next to the FOCO and, and do those kind of things. And then, then the next night, and then the next day I could, I could fly on an O2 with a Vietnam fac Raven pilot, and he'd be talking me through, you know, range control procedures and all these kind of things. This is before I went to combat control school. Um, wow. And then the next night, I'd be doing a, an insert uh, on a, a UH-1, uh, you know, a helicopter, uh, you know, and. Mm -hmm. and and then I'd be doing an, uh, I could be doing a jump, a water jump in the sound at Hurlburt, you know, getting out, derigging, getting the boat, you know, getting in the boat, you know, motoring off. And then making a, you know, on Fridays we'd do a demolition shot. So, you know, we'd go set up our little C4 things, you know, pop a cap in there, boom. I'm, I had so much fun, I, I, can't, I can't describe it. Um, I loved right, every, right. I loved every second of it. L literally, yeah. I loved every second of it. Um, nothing was a, a drudgery, if you know what I mean. Um, sure. And um, but I don't have some problem where I get uh, bored easily. But there is no way you could be bored. Right. There, literally, there is no way you could be bored. Um, and I loved it. And we had some unbelievable senior NCOs because everybody who taught me anything of value were all NCOs. There was only one officer, and that, he was the boss, uh, Major yeah, yeah. O'Brien. Good guy and all, but he, he, he didn't have time to teach me anything, you know. <laughs> Like look, yeah, and and NCOs taught me everything, everything, 
and these NCOs are probably just had gotten out of the war if, or a few years before or something. They probably had a lot of combat experience when you say or no. Well, it would. And I tell this story and I've told this publicly many times before. There was a particular person. I'll, I'll mention his name because it's, it was Master Sergeant Tony Renda who would. Um, oh, yeah. Have, uh, he, he had many sons. I think he had five sons, if I'm not mistaken. But I was told after I got back from combat control school and I was a qualified combat controller and I could wear a beret, you know, I mean, and be valid or whatever. Doesn't make you competent right away, but it it means you're valid, okay? Because, you know, you get your beret and you get all. So I was given, um, not command, but I was made the scuba team leader. We had a Halo team and a scuba team at Holbert a long time ago. It was in the first special operations wing, and we were a DOZ. So we weren't a squadron. We didn't have squadrons yet or anything like that. We were a, a, almost like a staff agency to the DO, who now we say the, is the A3 or the group commander, the ops group commander. That was what the gotcha. wing okay. was that. In today's parlance, that's the ops group command. So an ops group has okay. multiple squadrons. So uh, multiple squadron commanders reported to the um, to the DO. Okay. And we were a staff function, but the team was a, t- a team. It was the you know first South combat control team uh, attached to the first South. So. I was made that, you know, I was finally in the chain of command, if you will. I was the scuba team leader. And so they tell me, (laughs) you're going to get our top NCO is going to be your NCOIC. I go, I'm I'm ready. Remember, I'm a second lieutenant. (laughs) I'm a second lieutenant. And so I go, you know. I did learn something at the academy. I'm going to study their um, their profile. Their their I'm going to pull the records and study the records so I know. So I'm a, a kind of a not in today's term to be a sensitive boss or a knowledgeable boss. <laughs> right. You know, this is going to be my NCIC. I want to know something about. It. So I pull sure, the records, sure. and you know, my records are like, you know. Top <laughs> right. folder, and you got a couple pages in there, you know, a couple yeah, yeah. schools. That, that's it. That, that, right. that that's it. And You're right. So Tony Orenda's record was like, uh, like really thick. And I went, okay, you know, you know, sometimes if you have a really thick record, that could be good or that could be bad. You know, I mean, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Let's just say in Tony Orenda's, it was heroic. So I open it up and befi- besides all of the EPRs, I think we, we don't call them EPRs now or wh- whatever we call them now, but, but, but they were enlisted performance report sure. back then. And yes, they were, uh, they were all glowing, but it was the combat decorations that literally I, I almost fell on the floor because <laughs> You know, they start off, you know, Bronze Star, Bronze Star, 
air metal, air metal, uh, you know, air metal, uh, silver star, you know, and I'm going through this and I'm going, all of a sudden I go from kind of excited to, he is going to eat my <laughs> Think about it. You make movies like this. Yeah. Young, dumb, wet behind the ears, second lieutenant, you know, that wants to do the Wednesday. Well, we're having our, our war college prep classes or, you know, something like that. <laughs> and here's the experience right, right. warrior hero uh, NCO. You yeah. know, I mean, it's it's kind of like the movie with uh, Clint Eastwood, you know, where he's the he's a marine, uh, he's the he's already oh yeah, yeah. He's, Heartbreak Ridge, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, this young uh, dumb officer going, well, I'm going to you know the war college studies now. I, okay, anyway, the <laughs> the dichotomy is just weird. So I said he's yeah. gonna eat my lunch. Gonna eat my lunch. Right. And senior officers are gonna watch and they're gonna laugh because it'll be funny. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, exactly. it's just, it's naturally funny, isn't it? <laughs> right, right. Uh, so, well, I was wrong. Tony Renda, greatest thing that ever happened to me. Not only a great NCO, but he was perfect for me. And, you know, you're a second lieutenant, and so you do a lot of things. Like, I was trying to screw up, not intentionally trying to screw up, but second lieutenants just screw up because, uh, sure. I don't know, it just happened. Tony Arenda right. was perfect. In front of the troops, you know, we had about 12 guys. It was, yes, sir, yes, sir, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. Yes, sir, we're moving forward, boom. And if I was about to do something really stupid, then when everybody was gone, everybody gone, and it was just one-on-one -on -one with Tony and me, you go, sir, can't do that. It's a bad idea because no. this, this, and you explain everything in such precise detail like you would get from, an air traffic controller, a forward air controller, a combat controller, you know, a tech, like you would get that because of the precision that they bring to it. And, and he introduced right. me to that, what I call professionalism, professional precision as a second lieutenant. Mm. And, um, you know, so all, all my promotions and those kind of things, Tony Arenda, even after he retired and everything, was always there. And he's a great American hero from Vietnam. And yeah. on the mission that he was on at an airfield in uh, Vietnam, uh, Joe Jackson, a C-130 pilot, would get the Medal of Honor coming to pick up the combat control team that Tony Arenda was leading. So that mission was an intense uh, Vietnam you know, a ambush, attack, respond, and the C-130 coming in to, to pick up. And Tony Arenda was the guy uh, leading the charge on the ground. So wow. um, I would have other NCOs. 
that have similar Vietnam accolades that were to say that I was impressed is it just uh, it uh, um, it just doesn't do it. I I don't I don't know what term right. you can have, but they were so guiding in their instruction uh, and support to me personally. And they didn't have to, you know, they didn't have to be. They they had risen to the very top uh, of the business. Why 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 do they need to take care of a of a stupid second lieutenant? They didn't they didn't have to do that. If you know what I mean. They, it it sounds like that's the kind of guys they were though, don't you think? Like they were just such hard charging, like just just hardened veterans that they're they were like this is the right thing to do. Just great Americans. It seems like, don't you think? They were, they were, and. All of the big notables, uh, you know, I got to to meet, and that's the uh, the chief Mike Lampies and the chief Crutchfields and the chief Wayne Norads and the the, the the PJ, the chief Wayne Fisk, and you know, I mean, I could go on and I go. I was privileged once again to be around those people. It's just. It's just, it's just a fact. So that's why when people have, you know, how did you get to where you got? I go, well, I don't know. There's about a thousand people I need to thank personally and individually. Um, And I'm probably undercutting someone. Right, right. So anyway, that, that was, uh, so life at Holbert was fun. And I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's very professional to tell young CACP officers or whatever, but I, it's the truth. I had fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to have fun. I loved having fun. Um, sure. And um, it was um, a, a remarkable experience, and I learned a lot. Uh, second lieutenant, and actually uh, made first lieutenant, and then captain uh, while I was all at Harbor that first assignment. Okay. So that was my first assignment. And I, I feel like it was the greatest of all time. We didn't log at that time. We didn't log controls, um, you know, the number of controls, but I'm guessing I, I was on the range every night and it was even. So you'd say you got pretty proficient. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you make a whole (laughs) lot of mistakes and gunships are the greatest uh, platforms to make mistakes with when, Sure. You're not live, you know, when it's all right. Right. So I would say, you know, target is, you know, you know, five meters at this, or, you, know, you know, 50 meters, at the, you know, and then go, okay. The FOCO back, come back and go, you meant um, 180 at five or 180 at 10 or one. Oh yeah. 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 That's, that's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. We see him. We got him. You want us to take him out? Yeah. that kind of learning environment yeah what i think we miss today i don't i'm not quite sure we're giving that kind of learning environment to our young um you know officer or enlisted i i I don't know and if we're not shame on us because yeah training and more training and more training and more training when if you make a mistake people's lives aren't going to depend on that thing that can be fixed 
and you can fix it in a debrief and you can fix it in another learning session or you can fix it with more training. That's the kind of environment that you want. Um, I learned about a fighter pilot debrief before I even knew a lot of fighter pilots because the whole soft world did the, the debrief like that. No, you were here. You said you're going to be here. You weren't here. You were here. The rendezvous time was this. You didn't make that. You know, I mean, I mean, it, it, there was no rank conscious or any. It was mission focused. And the data and the information from that mission was not only rehearsed before, but was, you know, battle briefed afterwards. And sure. Ergo, the fighter pilot debrief the whole debriefing mechanism and um it was the the best learning environment that you possibly could have so whatever we're replicating in the future whether we're all digital whether we're all of it's online or not the closest we come to getting to that kind of preparation doing it and then talking about it without without the rank in the uh, without the protocol just the focus on the mission that's that's what we need to do i mean that's the right site picture in in, in my view yeah i agree and that's what i got at Herbert. like every day um it becoming it became embedded. yeah there's nothing more valuable than guys that you respect telling you exactly what you did wrong and how you should do it right. You know, that's, it just sticks with you. I mean, that that's an invaluable lesson that I think, I think they're doing. Um, but like you were like, kind of your, like you were alluding to the assets just, just aren't there. The repetitions are what these guys are lacking. Right. So uh, like you, like you said, you're on the range a lot. I used to be on the range a lot when I was a young guy and it just slowly got less and less. And now we're trying to look at simulation and we're trying to look at, you know, a, a guy in the next room on a radio and it, I, I don't think it quite has the 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 impact as as kind of like our experiences you know? right now you can do a lot of things through simulation and one of the the big things as a controller you can get the the verbal part and there is there, sure. as you know there's this verbal part to trans to translate in the three dimensions of information between either a you know, a flying system or a ground system, and you're trying to interrelate and you're trying to provide data, whether it's a, a nine line or other kind of data, you can right, right. You have these, you know, these verbal challenges. But once you get that worked out in the simulation, which your simulation mm -hmm. is great for, is that you need you need to smell see right here the result of your control yeah there's nothing more exciting than to call in an exact target especially with a gunship because you can anticipate in this case remember i was a models and h models a 105 uh -huh. howitzer and you got to see it, feel it, hear it, smell it, okay, it, and control it. There is, right, right. There is no substitute for that. Um, 
and you don't need a yeah, lot of that, but some of that with all the other training that you're going to do is literally worth its weight in a 105 shell. <laughs> right, for sure. So, and I got to do that almost every day at Holbrook. So, yeah, I loved it. Um, but people were telling me, you know, you know, we're going to create a new uh, numbered Air Force staff, and it because you know this is uh, good for your career. And I went, so I went from Hurlburt Field to the brand new 23rd Air Force. And at the time, we had taken uh, the first Special Operations Wing, which used to be in 9th Air Force in Tactical Air Command. Okay. And the only real soft unit that we had, except for the very special Det 1 Makos, the our other national mission element that John Carney started um, in May. Okay. So this was intact. And then we, the entire Air Force changed. We took all of that out of TAC, the Tactical Air Command. And the first SAL was under 23rd Air Force, which was created under MAC. So the Military Airlift Command okay. 21st, on the East Coast, 22nd Air Force on the West Coast. Then they had 23rd Air Force uh, for soft and rescue. And then the way soft and rescue was broken out, there was a first air division and a second air division. Second air division were all soft, and the first air division was all uh, rescue to include all the helicopters, PJs, uh, C-130 refuelers, all all of that. And so. I got to go to Scott Air Force Base, headquarters 23rd Air Force, as a a very young captain. Uh, I normally wouldn't recommend that to go into, and everybody in the headquarters is senior to you. Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone. So. Way, kind of back to where you begin, where you started in Herbie when you were the second lieutenant. Now you're you're almost back to that level right. at this next assignment. So. And to be honest with you, <laughs> the senior NCOs outranked you too, and I'll tell you why. Because they were picked for their expertise, and they were senior NCO, and they wouldn't be at the higher headquarters unless they had uh, stuff going on. And it just so happened that we had two PJs at 23rd Air Force um, that had gotten the Air Force Cross and multiple distinguished flying crosses in Vietnam. So. Wow. It was like, uh, once again, I go from this soft world where all these heroes are there, and then I go to this uh, numbered Air Force where you've got all of these heroes. I go, man, man, I'm surrounded by heroes. I'm, I'm literally surrounded by heroes. Um, but I've got, you know, I've got my National Defense Medal. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and my marksmanship ribbon. Yeah, right. Oh, and a longevity. I had a, a longevity ribbon. So, you know, I was. Oh, okay. Oh, wow, nice. <laughs> Getting that rack started. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's not that you make those kind of comparisons, but it is weird when you're standing next to someone, um, you know, like a, a hero PJ, you're standing there, they're in dress blues, you're in dress blues. 
and you know they've got this and you've got this little thing and they keep calling you sir yeah yeah, yeah. it feels weird i'll bet it's it's i'm telling you it's weird because i go uh <laughs> oh, oh, okay you know and that, i would be corrected all the time i i because i'd normally respond yes sir and they go sir i'm not a sir uh, 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 okay <laughs> i mean I, I mean that's the environment that i found myself in but once again i consider sure, that sure. to be privilege uh oh for sure I mean, who gets the privilege of being with those kind of warriors at herbert field and with those kind of warriors at uh, 23rd Air Force, a brand new numbered Air Force. And that's where I got kind of uh, schooled, if you will, and knowledgeable about the PJ uh, side, the rescue side of the house, uh, being at 23rd Air Force. So, mm -hmm. um, and when they asked me when I said 23rd Air Force to be a, the uh, detachment commander for, we were transitioning, everybody was transitioning in the halo business. We were transitioning to square parachutes. And I know that sounds like, haven't we always been jumping square parachutes? <laughs> we haven't. Yeah. We jumped round parachutes. They were called Paracommanders PC-24, something like that. But you would, you could do a halo, and your canopy was not square. It was a round canopy. Uh, and so all the things you had to learn as a jump master were just as difficult in terms of spotting when you were spotting as a jump master because it's oh yeah canopy uh, and so you weren't you there was no I mean you might have had the steerability of like a dash one yeah you did I mean it had toggles really have... and it was like um, it wasn't just like a T10 it was because you had the toggles but. At best, you, you know, sure, if you sure. pull down on one toggle, you know, you only got like a panel or two that would fold under, you know, to okay. make the turn. And so your turn wasn't yeah. sharp, but it was, mm, okay, and then. <laughs> All right. So you had to be a better spotter, and you had to learn, you know, that in the analog way, you had to learn that um, by eyesight and experience. I mean, you, 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 you couldn't do it. Uh, without that. Okay. So the task was to transition all the PJs to square parachutes and to to Halo. Because not every PJ, PJ had been Halo and not everyone uh, had a square parachutes. So I was made the detachment commander. Now, once again, now at this time, I've got, I don't know, I've probably got about 50 jumps. That was it. Yeah. And I was a detachment commander. And I had uh, six PJ instructors. Not one of them had under 1,500 jumps. So you have to know that, am I going to teach them anything? Well, the, no. the answer to that is really <laughs> obvious. I'm not going to teach them anything. Right, right. Are they going to teach me? Well, of course they are. But still, I'm the detachment commander <laughs> and responsible. Yeah. So, and their program that they'd already worked out, their curriculum was uh, was tough. 
and they put students through the ringer. I mean, and the students had to repack their parachutes. So you'd make, and basically we got a lot of helicopter lift functions, just like they were elevators. And so, and each PJ had, would have about two or three students. Um, the maximum was three. And so we'd be just be doing elevators all day long, all day long. So up, jump, get down, repack. You got that, you got this, got that, back in, up, jump, you know, repack. And when you actually do that, I'm talking about, you know, so a, a lot of the students were getting, I know you, you think I'm gonna make these numbers up, they're getting nine to 10 jumps a day. That's a day. And it was massive. And so the only officership thing that came into it at, at about day three, I go, there is no way with this op tempo. I've never seen any kind of op tempo like this. You know, right. the Green Bay Packers in the day or the Kansas City Chiefs in the day, the, the, yeah. you know, with two days. Bull. The, a two-a-day would be right. one-fourth of what these guys are doing. You know, like, yeah, it's crazy. And I actually saw the... I mean, it sounds like a lot of fun to maybe the, 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 to the person on the outside, but man, it's exhausting. I mean, we used to do like four or five a day, and that, that was like the max we could do, and that was a, a long day. That was an exhausting day. I can't imagine doing 10 jumps, having well, to repack was. and like get back on. Oh, it's just amazing. So this is where... This is where LA comes in. So I remember going, okay guys, I gotta talk to you. I go, <laughs> I love you. You're smarter, better, more experienced than I do. But I'm seeing this from a weird third party. And I think the students are exhausted. And the learning value, and I'm not an expert at, at, at instructional things but the learning value was decreasing the more jumps it's supposed to be expanding a little bit you're supposed to you know have a your your horizon should actually grow uh, the, right with the more training you should be able to see more things and a lot of students were making the same kind of mistakes over and over again and we even had the latest and the greatest of technology so There'd always be um, uh, a camera guy, and it would, uh, we called it advanced freefall, AFF. And so mm -hmm. um, after they did these jumps, then you would get with, you know, so you'd have a camera guy, and you'd have one student and one instructor, and they would be like this. For others, there would be, one instructor, one instructor, one instructor to one student. And when I saw that, I went, okay, that's the answer. The answer to the op tempo problem is do exactly what your advanced free fall, because I saw the difference between just up and down, up and down, up and down, and this advanced free fall method. And I said, who came up with this advanced free fall method? And they go, we did. I go, You've already got your answer. That's, yeah. that's the answer. <laughs> because in one jump, 
then the student not only gets videotaped, but he's got three different perspectives from an instructor that tell them, this is what you do. You know, you got, you know, your legs got to be, okay, you're too stiff. You, you, know, uh-huh. you, you know, got your hand, you know, I, I, they can critique this all and then you can see it on the video and it's amazing. Yeah. They agreed. I said, just do that. What you guys came up with and not a hundred elevators and the quality of your instruction will improve. They decided to do that. And then I said, there's one other thing I'm going to now mandate. We take a day off at day number six or seven. Day off. Everybody. Students, everybody. Day off. I don't care if people stay in the room, eat Cheetos, drink, you know, watch football. I, 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 don't, I don't care. Complete day off. Yeah. And I thought, I thought, oh, see, I'm, I'm, I'm so brilliant as a detachment commander. You know, I've applied my officership to this, uh, you know, to this problem. And then I found out that we were in California doing this. Then I found out that all the PJ, you know, I couldn't find them. You know, of course, it was their day off. I said, I don't want to see you. That, and they took me literally, and. They went to another location to go skydiving. <laughs> that sounds about right. That sounds right. <laughs> and then I found out, you know, later that night, I went, how's your day off? They go, oh, great, man. We, I got 15 jobs in. I got 15 jobs. How did you do that? Anyway, so... The only thing I did. It's like you're missing the point, guys. Come on. <laughs> we want you to did was, take it easy. Was institute a mandatory day off at like training day number seven. Um, okay. And then move to advanced free fall, which they came up with and they developed uh, on their own. Because they're that, they were that smart. You know, they developed a great curriculum. Yeah. They were just, in my mind, they were pushing the students just uh, even back in the day, you know, when you could push students. To the max. All right. Uh, they were pushing them too hard, and I loved all those guys. Um, but that gave me a viewpoint into uh, the pararescue mindset, if you will, more than I. I, I kind of had the the combat control mindset, you know, because that's what I grew up with at, at Herbie. Sure. Um, and then I got in that PJ mindset. Uh, so, I mean, for me, as a young officer, it was very valuable. Um, yeah. But I wanted to get back to ops. You know, the staff thing wasn't. Even though I got to do all of the war fighting exercises at the headquarters, and I learned a lot mm-hmm. there because I learned, you know, it's not just what you do on the tactical end. It's at these operational levels. Now, we didn't have what we call the CFAC back then. There was no CFAC, but there was a an no. air command, you, you know, and like a CFAC, in yeah. charge of everything. Um, and we had what we would normally have is a, an airlift air command. We call them COMALF, Commander Airlift Forces. It's a new okay. term that we don't use now. You know, we use DERMOB4, now Director of Mobility Forces in the AOC. Mm-hmm. 
but back then we called them commouts. And that that's who the boss was. Of all, whether we were running airfields or whatever we were doing, that was our boss that we reported to. And the rescue guys didn't necessarily report to the commout. They reported to a rescue commander. But all of these commanders were at this kind of operational level that was much higher than the tactical or, or airfield level, if you will, and exposed okay. to all of that at a very junior uh, time. And that made an impact on me too. And I could list, there were great commanders that I worked for that had unbelievable experience. And so I know I'm going to beat this dead horse like over and over again, but that's why I feel like I had an entire privileged career to be around such smart people, good people, warrior, warriors that had a warrior mentality that had been to war a lot and had seen a lot. And I wanted to soak up every single lesson I possibly could from them. and uh, I remember their war stories. <laughs> okay. Uh, in other words, don't do that. Do this. Got it. Got it. Um, so I lived vicariously through them a little bit. Well, that yeah. brings us up to um, I made major when I was at uh, MAC headquarters. And um, I didn't think I would make major because people had told me, hey, you're, you're a non-rated uh, a common control officer, you may make major, but you know, it's kind of a 50 50 kind of maybe not. I have to tell you, oh, really? I didn't, I didn't know it was like that. Oh, yeah, way back. Now, this is before the current special tactics era, sure, sure. But now, everybody, is, okay, almost every special tactics officer probably could be a, a GO, but back in the day, a long time ago. If you made major as a combat control officer, that was a big deal. Yeah. It was about 50-50. And I knew huh. that. I, I have to tell you, I, I didn't care. Like, I, I go, okay. It, I mean, if I'm a captain, can I can I go back to Herbie or, <laughs> right. or, or to Fort Bragg and just, you know, like, go out on the range every day? I, I, can I do that? I, I mean... I literally would be happy with that. Right, right. But, you know, um, but then I started getting these uh, opportunities that people gave to me. It's not because I was some special guy. They gave me all of these opportunities. Um, I, I have no idea to this day why I got these opportunities, but I loved each and every one of them. And uh, the opportunity to go to school and to be the second class of SAS, that's the School of Advanced Air Power Studies. I have no idea how okay. I got that opportunity, except I, you know, I, I applied for it and I got it. I got to go to the, you know, the Naval uh, Command and Staff College. I, you know, of course, I applied for it, but it's not like I was, you know, the top guy over here, the top guy over there top academy graduate okay never any of that um but i would always get more opportunities and then i would get a job at the air staff working for skunk works um 
Man, that yeah, tell me a little bit about that. I'm not I'm not that familiar with that. Can can you even go into it? Or is that something you can go into? Yeah. Or so um, uh, we created this um, office and it's changed names uh, throughout the years. Um, married after the actual Skunk Works at Lockheed Martin. So there is a Skunk Works, and they develop things like um, the SR seventy one and those kind of programs. Um, okay. And they were very special programs. And at the time they were called black programs. So nobody knew about them, but they knew a big chunk of money was going for this. And it was going for some reason right. to Palmdale, uh, California, you know, where, where we do all the special uh, airplane stuff uh, without getting mm -hmm. uh, too much detail. And the air staff back in the late 60s, probably early 70s created an air staff office that they labeled skunk works because it kind of modeled and what this group did at the air staff was the weird unique things that n nobody wanted to talk about and and some people and so the way it was a great opportunity was every almost for a while like every four-star general in the air force had worked in this office. Um, and a lot of former GOs had, had cycled through this office when they were young majors or lieutenant colonels or something. <laughs> so I go, oh, okay. How in the world do I I get to go there? <laughs> I'm i I'm telling you, I I'm not trying to be humble. I, I don't know. Because the my yeah, yeah. my peers that were there, there was a major Scott Norwood, for example. He'd gotten a DFC in Desert Storm, um, was the top, the actual number one graduate from uh, Naval Command and Staff. And I was in Naval Command and Staff, and he was the number one grad. I, I wasn't. He was, okay? Yeah. Um, and I go, how do I get the same opportunity that this guy? And he was also brilliant, by the way. And he is. He's a, he's yeah. a brilliant guy. Um, he would go on to do uh, great things, and now he's a big SES, um, like the number one SES in indo pacom Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, a really smart guy. So, and then it just kept uh, piling on. So from there, um, I get to work for directly the Secretary of Defense for Cuban Affairs. Um, maybe it's because they... I don't know. I was Hispanic, or I, I have no idea. But they said, "Are you are you willing to do that?" And I go, "Yeah, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. I'll do it." And we did special projects because at the time um, we'd had this issue with Cuba because we, you know we'd had the Haiti invasion or non-invasion, right, right. nice invasion. And we had another Cuban migration crisis um, develop uh, during the Clinton administration. So okay. uh, it was going to be another Muriel uh, boat lift kind of situation. And so uh, okay. the Secretary of Defense wanted someone who uh, could speak to those issues. I learned how to speak to those issues, but it's not like I was some kind of PhD expert on Cuba or Haiti. 
I, I wasn't. I mean, I became an expert at their issues because that was sure, my sure. And so you were right, right. on the job study, if you will, and do it rapidly and be familiar with those issues. And from there, I got to work for Mort Halpern at the National Security Council staff at the White House, working the same issue. Wow. I mean, why? I, why do I get those jobs? I mean, I'd like to say, oh, yes, it's because of my extensive resume or what. I, 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 that that just wouldn't be true. I loved every job I had. I loved the excitement. You know, I mean, it, it's kind of cool working at the White House. <laughs> I reckon. I actually sat in the desk that, you know, Ollie North sat in. But he was a lieutenant colonel. I was a major, you know, um, working at the White House. So. Because yeah, yeah. old executive office building, which is right next door to the West Wing and, you know, the White House. Mm -hmm. So you have to go across this little street that's protected and then you go into the West Wing. But uh, my office was in the old executive office building. Okay. And we worked Haitian and Cuban migration. And so then literally every week I was flying from D.C. to Miami, Miami. Guantanamo, Guantanamo, Havana, Havana, Guantanamo, Miami, D.C., Miami, Havana, Guantanamo, D.C. Like every week I did that for a year. Oh, my gosh. These issues. And so we had we resettled over 75,000 Haitian and Cuban uh, migrants. And so the current immigration challenge that we currently have, I, I'm. I'm very familiar because it's how I learned the the legal aspects of the difference between, you know, someone who is uh, immigrating and that we would mm -hmm. call a migrant, right, legal right. or illegal part. Forget that just a minute. We would call them a migrant, okay? And we have many immigrants uh, from all over the world, and there is a natural process, legal process. To do that, and we everybody's familiar in government with with what that is. Okay, there are those people that are refugees, and they have a different legal status than immigrants, because if they make it to our shores, we have an obligation, a requirement, to hear in, in a legal sense what their their issue is, and they can stay okay. in the United States. I mean, that, that, that law, those basic laws haven't changed in a long time. We mm -hmm. have a weird view of it now because so many people are coming across that are making multiple claims. I, 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 I'm not, I'm not going to either invalidate or validate uh, their claims, but we think sure, sure. the experts that they're mostly immigrants who are immigrating illegally because they're crossing the border without permission. Now, whether or not right, right. They're, they're refugees, that, that would have to be determined legally. And uh, we have a lot of compassion, just like I had compassion for 75,000 people that we all put and housed at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. We almost shut down all of the naval operations 
And this is before, of course, we had terrorists um, that we would put at Guantanamo Bay from the wars in OEF and OIF. You know, before we did right, that, right. a decade before, we housed over 75,000 people that were escaping from both Haiti and, and Cuba at Guantanamo Bay. And so that's why I was flying down there. And uh, we would work those issues um, day in and day out. And it was almost a weird kind of assignment because I was like operational, but I was at the White House. When you're at the White House, you really kind of determine policy. You don't execute. But Uh, who was famous for another reason in the Nixon administration, uh, Mort Halpin said, I really need military operational expertise. In other words, if we say to the military, you're going to house 75,000 people, will they push back? Yes. In a big way. <laughs> because how do you do that? Yeah, yeah. How do you take care? And be responsible for seventy-five thousand families and everything. How do you, how do you, how do you do that? In a small little place. Yeah. And because um, it's not even there, that's not even their mission set. Like you, they don't even get trained on how to do that. Really, frankly, especially the Marines down there at Guantanamo. Exactly. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Uh, I do tell a quick <laughs> little war story that um, I had a lot. You know, I would meet with a lot of them. Um, non-government entities, you know, that were, were trying to help and, and, and some good, some bad, some political, some not political. And all, I'd be challenged a lot because they'd go, well, you know, those military guys are, you know, they're, they're, they're beating everybody and they're, you know, treating these people horribly. And I go, not true. It's not ever been true. And if you say that again, I will throw you out of this meeting and you will never have another meeting at the White House again. Because what you just said is a lie and not true. And so I would give them then a Marine story. I go, I want you to think about after these Marines have been on duty for over 12 hours, that what would they do on their off time? I would find them with uh, some of these um, groups that were providing, uh, you know, child care or some other uh, kind of NGO, you know, non-government entity. I said, those Marines, and, you know, and I would I would play it up. These Marines, you know, big, big muscles, you know, be in their T-shirt, you know, you know, they'd walk in there and they'd be sorting through tiny little baby clothes so that that's what they were doing on their off time. So if you ever say that about the United States military, again, I will make sure you never get an invite from the White House. Do you understand me? People <laughs> then found out, you know, because I only wore civilian clothes, then they found out I was in the military and they go, oh, Oh my God. Okay. Uh, we see where he gets it from. I, I don't know. I, yeah. know I, <laughs> like, I guess I had used my command voice too much or something or, or, or something like that. But I tell that story over and over again because people get it. Then they go, 
yeah. great military people doing the job that they've been asked to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people have that misconception. They just see what they see on TV or movies or maybe that one little, you know, uh, that one anomaly, that, you know, of a guy doing something horrible. And then it's like, well, the whole we're just going to paint the whole military with that broad brush, you know, and it's it's not fair. It's not it's not right. Yeah, and it's not. So um, now in that particular case, I give them I give the Marines a lot of credit. I give the Air Force credit. I give the Army credit. Uh, I give the Navy credit for all of the things that they did during this time. And we, we reopened an Air Force base, Homestead, because it had been devastated a couple of years prior by a hurricane. Oh, right, right. Uh, yeah. uh, completely devastated. And we'd moved everything off. And so one of the ideas that I had frankly come up with, and I almost in a nice way forced it down the DODs, I said, why can't we open up a facility at Homestead so that we can control the environment, not at Miami International Airport and have every politician come be making speeches. Uh, and both Republicans and Democrats, you know, made speeches about this, you know, no, we shouldn't. Yes, we should. No, we shouldn't. Yes, we should. No, we shouldn't. Yes. And I was not trying to keep anything from the public. But at, at a certain time, you, you know, we weren't hiding what we were doing but we could control the environment just a little bit better. Okay. Um, I just think about our border patrol every day, what they're trying to do. Um, And it's, it's a thousand times worse than what, what we had it back then. Yeah. Yeah. So we reopened Homestead Air Force Base. That was my, that was my big uh, claim to fame, if you will. It cost the Department of Defense a lot of money that I had to get, you know, that we had to get DOD reimbursed for. But I'm sure that helped out a lot. Like you were talking about with the if we had a a situation like that at the the border now, it might take some of that pressure off the Border Patrol. Because like you were saying, I mean, people go down there and they kind of grandstand and they 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 use them as as like these political pawns. And these Border Patrol guys just trying to do their job like to make this thing work. So, right. And, and I don't want to blame Democrats or Republicans because I don't want to, uh, you know, because it happens both ways. It, it sure, actually sure. does. And I'm still a military guy at heart. So right. I don't people I don't tell people that I'm a Republican or Democrat. I mean, people know that yeah. I'm registered conservative, registered Republican, et cetera, et cetera. And that, I mean, they get to know that about me. But I don't want to profess those um, uh, domestic political issues in front of a military audience. When I'm a contractor and I go in front of a military audience, I don't, you know, because they're, they're limited. They, they, they can't. Right. You know. uh, and so I don't want to put them into a bad situation. I, I do like to talk policies though, you know, stay on, if we can stay on policies and not the rhetorical attacks that, Someone is xenophobic yeah. or racist or homophobic or whatever phobic that I, I can't remember all of the phobics. I go, well, <laughs> right. I want to talk about the policy, this policy. Does it help the maximum number of people for the longest period of time? And can we afford it? Can we do that? Can we talk about yeah. those public policy issues? And I know that sounds Pollyannish, but. I don't think so. I mean, I think I think it's the other way. I think 
guys like us look at policies because we're trying to get we, we are actually trying to get to a solution whereas these other guys are just going down there like i said to grandstand and kind of get votes and you know make themselves look better both sides right. and and it's like what what how is that helping you know i'd rather i'd rather we implement the policies or get rid of them if they don't work and then start finding a solution to the problem but it seems like they're not they're not really that interested in finding a solution no it seems no. like uh, then, uh, seems uh, like to me that's disappointing and i know a lot of my friends my compatriots go, can we get back to some kind of debate in the country? And in my opinion right now, I think debate is dead. I think it's it's yeah. literally dead. We've bifurcated so much that we can't even we can't even talk our way through some of this because someone uses some kind of rhetorical device and you know it, it, yep. there, there is, and I forgot the law that you know that the, the the social media law where you know you're you're online for just like one or two iterations and you get to okay okay that's like the Nazis or you're racist or oh, yeah, yeah. You, you know you don't like uh, you know gay people or you don't like this or you don't like oh, are you it's the war on women or what I go ah. Please stop. Right. It's not true. Can we just talk yeah, about yeah, yeah. what kids are learning in school? No, you can't. Yes. Uh, you're on there either on one side or the other. I go, well, unfortunately, life is too complicated. It's it's for it's sure not that simple. If it were that simple, right? Then I go, okay, I'm with the A team or the B team or whatever. Yep. Right. But uh, yeah, can't do it. You know. And I taught debate yeah. at William and Mary and taught speech at uh, Thomas Nelson Junior uh, College. And I told them at the time, you know, this was about 10 years ago when I first got out. I said, debate, uh, debate is dead. It's dead. Look at the major issues that we have and we can't talk about. It. Right. Global climate change, which for whatever reason, it's up on everybody's list. I said, okay, you cannot have a reasonable discussion about global climate change without some person saying, if, as soon as they disagree, you're a denier. A denier of right. You're denying science. No, I'm not. Yes, you're right, denying exactly. science. No, just because I am not agreeing with the solution that you're proposing doesn't mean that I'm denying the science behind something. That that that's not true. When you say that, right. it it could sound nice, um, but it's not nice. It it's yeah. it's actually a lie. You probably know it's a lie, or you're guessing mm -hmm. at best, and. You think that I need to be then muzzled because I'm a climate science denier? I go, okay, I don't know how to have a discussion with that kind of a person. You can't. Yeah, you can't. I mean, they've already got that preconceived notion of what they believe, and they have a solution to this problem, their solution. And if you don't, like you said, if you don't agree with it, then that's it. You, you're, you're on the bad side automatically. It's like, wait, there's probably other ways to to skin this cat, you know, let's try to work through it or, or something. I well, don't know. But, but you said, like you said, the debate. I mean, is it's dead. just like, okay, I recycle a lot. Okay. What does that mean? 
Do I get a gold star for recycling? No, I should be saying. Right, right. I, I don't get any credit for it. I don't want to get any credit for it. I right. shouldn't get any credit for it because it's something I should do. Right. It, I just feel like it's something I should do. Maybe it saves some energy yeah. resources somewhere. We can apply that to something else. We can make products uh, cheaper. I, I don't know. I, I just, yeah, yeah. I, I would do it. But I don't want to be told then that I'm denying science because I'm against a politician flying across the world and telling me that they're good. When they're burning more gas exactly. than I have ever thought about burning. I mean, yeah. I go. It's so hypocritical. I know. So hypocritical. I don't even know how to, to, to bring it on. And everybody has this yeah. kind of virtue signaling disease, you know, yep. so. And I and I go, can we go back to the beginning on something? Just because you called this person out, it didn't solve a problem. It didn't Nothing. make them change. You could have hurt them. That's true. And it didn't bring any virtue to yourself. It really didn't. Right. You may think it did, but that's not how you gain virtue. <laughs> you don't <laughs> signal to the world, hey, I've got virtue. So. Um, does everybody know that? Because I called them, right, exactly. you know, this bad person over here, or this bad person over here, or this bad person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Truly virtuous people don't seek recognition for it. Like they do it because it's like you said, I recycle because I think it's the right thing to do. I don't, I'm not like, you know, yeah. And they're, they're missing the point on yeah. virtue. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I, I'm probably giving you too much philosophy, uh, uh, you know, you can only listen to so much of L.A. because I, I don't want to ever sound like the old grumpy man uh, kind of person. And then I realize when I'm talking to my kids, because my kids give me good feedback. How can I not <laughs> sound like the old grumpy person um, and still provide something of value <laughs> to, to the people who are listening? How, I mean, how, how can I make that um uh, without well, I, I don't th I don't feel that way at all. And I think it, I think it is a matter of opinion in the audience. You know, like you're, some people you're just not going to you're always going to seem like that to based on their like their preconceived notions. But like uh, guys like me, I could sit here all day and listen to you and <laughs> listen to you talk. So, well, you know, don't, I, I think it, I think it depends on who you're who you're talking to, you know. So sure. I think that's a good uh, uh, thing that I would like to talk about. I, I want to tell you how impressed I was when I uh, studied uh, you and your your online presence, to me, oh. it's impre it's significantly impre impressive. Then I, I read a lot of the things you wrote, and you wrote them for the purpose of helping to educate, uh, you know, the younger, you know, NCO. Or you didn't have to be intact, but you got all special warfare, uh, all leadership. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't have to mm -hmm. be the military because those rules, you know, that. They don't just apply to military people. They can apply to teachers. They can apply to, to firemen, uh, police, um, anybody that's in kind of public service, if you will, sure. um, those apply. So that's impressive to me. And the reason it's impressive is because even though I don't do it and I don't have that kind of online presence, I'm impressed by it because of the significance of the quality of the instruction or the message.
the, the, it's the quality of the message that's important. And we have digitized everything in the future. You know, no analog. It's all, everything is digitized. All everything right. is on. Well, everything is mobile. Everything is through a mobile app. I, I got. I got it. I got it. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying I can do it, but because I can't do it, that's why it's impressive to me because right. it maintains that yeah, quality yeah. that I'm looking for in a normal discussion. You know, where you get to the kind of meat and potatoes of an issue. Yeah. And the substance of a public policy issue. But to be able to do it, and I'm not trying to blow your skirt up, but, you know, online and in the new kind of way is impressive. It is. Oh, <laughs> it, just is. Appreciate it. it just is. Huh. Um, and for whatever you think about, like, for example, Donald Trump, I go, somehow that old person who'd never been in government before could take and have such an online presence. And I know he developed people that hated him. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know he did that. I realize I'm not going to, I'm not going to say go one way or the other on it. I, I'm not, sure. And, uh, but I won't go into yeah, yeah. whether or not, you know, I believe everything that Donald Trump says or whether or not, you know, I agree with the people that absolutely can't stand him and hate him. You right. cannot argue with the success, the substantive success that he had in breaking into American politics. Now, some people oh, are going to sure. think he broke it, that he's he's the reason, not a symptom. You know, they're going to say he's the reason, not a symptom. And then other people are going to say, well, he's a symptom, but with an antidote, you know, and his anecdote right. was to do this. Mm hmm. Both of them make substantial arguments, but the reason we can't talk about it is because we can't have a public policy discussion like that. Right, right. Yeah. He's so polarizing that if you bring up, even if you say like, even if you, they'll never, if people that hate him can never concede any kind of positive point at all in his way. Otherwise they feel like they're letting themselves down or letting their base down or their side. And it's like, there's a, there is a way to, uh, sift through all the stuff you hate about something or someone and find nuggets of goodness. Oh. You know, there, there, there are some things that are good in, it, you know, in, in the way he did his thing. I mean, right. yeah, for so, sure. You know, um, and it's just that discussion, uh, that uh, political bifurcation polarization that you're talking about has invaded everything that we do. Mm -hmm. And I go, now pretty soon here, in about an hour and a half or so, we're going to watch the Super Bowl. <laughs> and to be honest with you, yeah. I just want to watch the Super Bowl. I don't want to get right, right. A, a political commercial that tells me to, either, even though we used to want to watch the Super Bowl commercials because they were funny. And we tried to right. be funny. But we, we dumped all of that. For some kind of weird political correctness, uh, some kind yeah. of, and I go, I'm sorry, I'm a stupid old fat man. I just want to be entertained, <laughs> and I want to eat right. my uh, chips and salsa with a little guacamole, um, <laughs> and not give me that. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, it's what I want. There's so much I see like that. So much uh, entertainment, like you said, like I don't, I don't get to watch that much. So when I do sit down and watch something, I don't want to be preached to. I want to, I, I know what I, you know, I, I, if I want to seek out, uh, you know, political things, I will seek them out. But if I'm seeking out entertainment, I, that's what I want. I don't want to be, you know, like, I don't want to, yeah, exactly. It's, um, yeah. And I'm the same way. Um, that's why, you know, and people can pick and choose what they want. And we have to, you know, we have so many choices today that literally. Right. We're not in need of like more choices because we used to be limited a long time ago to, you know, three television stations yep. <laughs> that you didn't get digitally. Um, you got it through yeah. um, aluminum foil rabbit ears and that's how you got it in color even. Um, and the news at that time was a guy who was just reading the news he didn't put his spin on it or, you know, not normally anyway. Um, normally just a dude just telling you what happened. And that was, that was it, you know, that, but now it's, now sometimes it's hard to even tell what the news is. You know, there's some people, you know, I'm not telling anybody, I'm not telling, say anything that everybody doesn't already know, but it was nice back then when he would just read it and you found out what was going on and that was it, you know, no, yeah. no spin or no, no, nothing like that. It, so it absolutely is. And, um, you'd asked before about, um, if I had any messages for the current um, great Americans that are active duty today and are trying to do their damnedest to do the right thing, um, be combat ready, and you know, wade through all of the programming issues that we're going to have. And the message that I would give young airmen or officers is the same. You came into this business probably because it excited you. I mean, you can't just go, oh, I don't, you, you, I, I've never seen a person that we've ever selected. <laughs> so yeah, that's no, I don't want to do anything like that. That's why they're not in this business. It does take a kind of like-mindedness, but it doesn't mean we all think alike. But it takes a general foundation for a like-mindedness because we wouldn't attract the special warfare airmen of the future if they didn't act like and think like a little bit the old TACP, the old ROMAD, the old PJ, the old uh, combat weather, the, before I start, mm -hmm. the old um, combat controller, the, the, you know, the old ALO. Right. Um, there is something that ties the new and the, the last chief of staff uh, coined this phrase, new, new. <laughs> um, I guess there was old, old, uh, new, old, and then new, new. And, right, right. Um, uh, that was Jerome Goldfein, and I liked it. I liked the construct, and I actually used that because you know, he's the chief. And I want to use sure. uh, those thoughts uh, as it applies to joint all domain command and control. And he said, we're in a new, new. And so the challenge with new, new is that you can't just take an old standard and paint it some way and call it uh, new. 
because right. if you take the old, then, you, then you're in the category of old new. It's newer old. Thank They're you. suggesting that we're in this new new. And the language associated with new new is that we must, and this is going to sound familiar, we must reimagine something. Reimagine the tax ads. Reimagine TACP. Reimagine police forces. Reimagine government. Reimagine, okay. All right. I, I like the reimagine. I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. But the requirement of the new, new people, I say, you still have to give me a little of that imagination and you need to spell a little of that imagination out. Saying the words yeah. reimagine something doesn't actually do what you say we need to do. Sure. We must reimagine. Okay, when are we going to start? What does yeah. it look like? <laughs> How big is it? How much does it cost? Do we have right. to train to it? Is it automatic? Will it all be AI? Well, that's what we're. No, 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 no. I'm yeah. going to force you to. Given me some of that imagination that's here in this new, new category. Now, what I hear in our new people is that they want to be in this new category. But I love it. And there's nothing wrong with that. Put it on paper. Talk about it. Train to it. Do it. Apply it. Execute it. Operate it. Command and control it. And here's the Missouri part that comes out in me. Show me. Right. If you show me once, I'm convinced. If you're talking it all the time, but you're never showing it to me, then you're going to have to convince me. I think we should be able to track first-gen technology when it comes across the environment of the continental United States plus Hawaii and Alaska. And I used to hear from people in a certain command, hey, we've got this joint all domain command and control. We got it. We got it. I go, okay. So the first part of it is being aware of what's in your domain. So I agree with the Air Force four star general, General Van Herc, who said we had a domain gap and we need to fix it. He's right. He was honest, truthful, and serious. It takes all of those things. Yeah. Um, we can shoot something down. That's not a problem. Um, <laughs> and we don't need to get that issue involved in whether or not Republicans are upset or Democrats are upset or they're happy or we're not. Stop. Stop with the domestic politics. This comes with protecting the airspace environment over our country. So right. is that new new? Is that new old? Or is some of that really old, old stuff that we should have <laughs> never forgotten about? Right? Yeah, that seems like very old, old. Like it should have never went away. Yeah. It's like, how did we forget that part? Right, should have never gone away. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so the current group of folks have to live, I think, in this new, new world that a lot of what they do is new old, but I don't want them to forget about the old old because the old old 
will help educate them on how fast the actual direction, the the concepts involved in new new. I'm even though people don't want to admit it, that's the truth, and it's definitely true in yeah. joint all domain command and control. Well, I don't I don't remember ever being taught anything that uh, just forget about all the old stuff, and we're going to teach you some new stuff now. Don't worry about map and compass i got you a gps now you don't have to worry about anything I've, I've never heard that before so like the old old is all is always something you should know and have you in your head pocket but yes we should of course you know progress to the new new but yeah never forgot the old the old old i mean that's just day one i didn't realize that the I mean, tacp association um the convention in november uh, that i went to mm-hmm. i was guest speaker for part of it um i was very impressed with the foundation and with um, the association, we're taking great care of our Gold Star families. Yeah. That crushing. was impressive. And um, while I don't have a lot of money, uh, my annual contribution will be upped to the TACP Association just because they performed, in my view, all of the leadership of, of both, they performed brilliantly. And I want to be very supportive of that um, going forward. So the TACP Association, the Air Commando Association, the Soft Warrior Foundation, and the Wounded Warrior Foundation are really my biggies. uh, As long as I keep something still going to the Red Cross, because the Red Cross uh, has been there my entire lifetime, you know, for for a lot of different people. and um, I wish I had uh, more to give. Well, the thing about it is, though, like if, if everybody gave what they could, I think, you know, it'd be we'd be a lot better off, you know, like, yeah, I'm the same way. I'm not independently wealthy either, but I give what I can. And I think if everybody kind of gave just a little, it just would turn little. into a lot, right. you know, obviously. Well, that's right. Yeah. But they were yeah. they ran a, a great convention. And, you know, I go, uh, I was impressed. And yeah. Um, I want them to keep doing it, uh, you know, because I, yeah. that and all the awards they gave for, you know, the outstanding TACP, the uh, competition that they had mm-hmm. that was right prior to it. I love that. That's the way that, that's the right side picture. In other right. words, they're doing the right things. Those are the right things. Yeah. As a young combat controller, I went to every combat control reunion and I got to meet even older guys uh from vietnam (laughs) and you know the original um pathfinding combat controllers back in the 50s i mean my gosh i go wow i wouldn't give that up for anything well our folks need to hear from all of these you know and i can list the you know all of the the chief master sergeants in tac b from my era but these these are in my in my view they're like they're godlike if you yeah, know what I mean I agree yeah it's straight up heroes they, they influence sure. so many people besides me yeah there's no doubt that they're heroes but it's the it's the amount of influence that they have in growing sure. uh, new new leaders if you will one thing that General Creech yep. is a former tank commander from a long time ago. We named Creech Air Force Base after him. 
General Creech said the first job, the very first job of a leader is to create new leaders. So I know mission is always first, but you, even if you did the mission, if you don't have another leader that follows it, you, you, you'll do no more missions. Uh, sure. So you need this continuous crop of new leadership that are inspired and uh, knowledgeable uh, to make great things happen. And I've never forgotten about Definitely. it. You know, I go, what? I, something I read, he was a, <laughs> a big uh, total quality management person after he retired, you know, wrote the book, Total mm -hmm. Quality Management, TQM. And uh, that's one of the quotes uh, that was in there. I went, wow, never forget that. And uh, I tried very hard to live up to, I'm not saying I did, but I tried very hard to live up to that, my time in the TACP business, because I knew it was yeah. going to be limited. You know, you, you never know. I mean, you, you, just right, don't know. Right. you have no idea what your next assignment is. So I had to keep the really good officers, get rid of the bad ones. We had a few bad ones. I won't name their names, but we had yeah. a few. <laughs> And uh, my job was to cut them from the herd. And there are some remarkable officer heroes of mine that work for me. They're unbelievable. Uh, yeah. Shaq Beauchene, you're probably aware of Colonel Beauchene. Yep. Uh, Pete Donnelly, probably aware of yeah. Colonel yeah. Pete Donnelly. Definitely. Colonel Don Tharp, probably aware of Don Tharp. Definitely. Uh, yep. Well, Byron sure. Reisner, uh, you know, uh, now yeah. I can go on and on and I, and, and I will, but it, it, I go without those, without those officers, our business would just not have, it, we, it wouldn't have worked. Um, I didn't have to tell them a lot except take care of my troops. Yeah. And they go, got it. It's funny you mentioned that because those names, that's the first thing I think of is um, looking out for us. You know, that all those guys, that's all they did was make sure that we had what we needed to do to fight, you know, to, right. to get to get the mission done or to be successful. I mean, that, that's the number one thing that stands out about all those names. So. Right. And uh, I, I love them to pieces because... Yeah, they're great. And the troops loved them. That, that, yeah. I, I can guarantee that. They were natural yeah. in this business. Now, all those guys that I just talked about were all rated officers. I mean, they flew something. Mm -hmm. right, F-16s, right. B-52s, B-1, uh, F-4s, uh, F-15Es. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So all those officers had flown those different airplanes. And so... I appreciated that. And yeah. from the officer side, when I took over the 18th ASOC, you know, the, the NCOs were worried, okay, he's a combat controller. Is he going is he, is he <laughs> to wear a red beret every day? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm sure that was out there. You, you know, what is mm -hmm. he going to be like? But with the officers, yeah, yeah. there was another little thing, you know, like, 
what they were talking about. Not not with me present, but you know what I would for sure. my intel sources. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right, right. About, well, he's. I mean, and they didn't say it disparagingly because they were accurate. They go, he's a non-rated puke. Like you know, he's he's non-rated. Like you know <laughs> right. what? How could he possibly help us? Um, yeah. I, and they didn't mean it to be to undermine it. But they yep. were worried about how a non-rated puke like me would command the 18th day side. Right. And so I can remember the first thing. So I get to the 18th day side and I look around the staff. Now remember there are fighter pilots out in the in in my squadrons. But I'm looking at my staff. Right. I don't have one fighter pilot. Not one. Yeah. I didn't have one. I immediately called the ninth air force commander, my boss. I said, sir, I got a problem. He says, well, he says, you just got there. I said, I know. (laughs) He was a fighter pilot. So he would understand it. I said, sir, I don't have one fighter pilot on my staff. Not one. This is the largest forward air control organization in the United States air force ground or airborne. And I said, we have more Ford Air Control squadrons. Now, at the time, we weren't calling them Special Warfare Airmen, and we weren't even calling them Battlefield Airmen, because I was yeah. using the term, these are airmen that are in combat on the, of course, you weren't in combat yet. Okay. I said, but you, right, you, right. I said there is not one fighter pilot. Okay. All right. Are you going to keep hounding me with this? Yes, or am. It's okay. <laughs> what I want you to do. Now, this is a three-star general. And as General Wall, and I think he liked me. I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't know if he did or not, but, but he was very supportive. He says, go to the ACC staff and go to the director of personnel. Find a fighter pilot that's on the ACC staff. And you have my imprimatur, tell the personnel, put him down at the 18th ASOC. <laughs> I did. So... <laughs> Who'd you end up getting? Stamp Walden. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, he had flown F4s and then uh, F117s. Okay. Um, Had all kind of air medals from, I think, Desert Storm. uh, So, I, you know, the personnel person gave me like, you know, like 20 records. And I went through them all and I go, okay, that's what I want. So. So the colonel that was in charge of him, I think it was an A3 or I can't remember. He calls me and he goes, hey, and he didn't know me. So he didn't know that I go by L.A. or whatever. I heard you have it out for my guy. And I go, what? I, I, don't, I don't. What do you mean have it out for your guy? Yeah. I handpicked him. From the ACC staff to go to the 18th day side. He goes, well, he's a pilot. You know, he he doesn't need to do any of that, you know, air ground bullshit, you know, and, you know, nobody gets promoted in that job. Nobody gets this. Nobody gets that. This is, it's a waste of time. It's, you know, I, I heard everything. I heard it. Yeah. And I go, well, you and I, we're going to have to agree to disagree. Um, but let me tell you how it's going to work, Colonel, because I'm a Colonel. 
it's yeah, beyond yeah. you and me as colonels. Like, it's beyond us. The three-star general has said this is going to happen. And it did. That's how Stamp Walden got to the 18th ASAP. And at first, <laughs> he was, oh, sir, do you know what I mean? I said, I love you already. You know, I said, now I want you to do this, this, and this. As yeah, it yeah. turned out, he was fantastic. And you know, he is working now. Oh, great guy. At a joint command at Fort Bragg. Right. Doing air ground stuff that right, he's right. the best in the world to do. Yep. Um, a great officer. Um, yeah. Now we got him promoted once, but you know, I, then I left, and so I don't know what happened after that. Yeah. But, but that was the feeling when I took over the 18th ASOC. And I, yep. so I think it kind of sent a message to all the officers that when I say something, number one, I'm serious about it. I'll listen to them. Yeah. If I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do something. And then I got guys promoted. That their commander said, sir, there's probably no way you can get these guys promoted. I said, are they good? Sir, they're great. I said, do you need them? We need them badly. Do the troops love them? The troops love them. It's mm -hmm. all I need. I'll get them promoted. I mean, so to get a, a passed over twice major get them promoted to lieutenant colonel is yeah. not an easy task. Um, we got them promoted. And as nice. it turns out, they were just that, great officers. Okay, troops loved them, great in combat, and provided yeah. leadership yeah. in the air ground business. So I'm very happy uh, with that. And then, the other thing, I, I after talking to people at the TACP Association, you know, the, the 17th Special Tactics Squadron, the 17th Special Tactics Squadron, you know, they were, and I said, okay, um, do you know, do you know how the 17th Special Tactics Squadron came to be? <laughs> well, you know, Soft Command just, you know, just automatically wanted us, and you know, we were, uh, we were great in combat. That's true. You're great in combat. <laughs> No doubt about it. Actually, being great in combat was first. Yeah. If you think that there are people that wanted you, that's not true. I wish it were true, but it wasn't true. I don't say I'm the hero in this whole thing. You're the heroes because you proved in combat what I was yelling and screaming at people about. I go, hey, not only are they not going to let you down, they're going to save your ass. They're going to help win the war. Well, they're not special ops this. I go, what? What do you mean they're not special ops this? What, what are they not special ops? I've been special ops for longer than anybody at these, in these rooms. I go, what, what, do you, what do you think is special about them? Um, well, you know, this and this and this and this and this. I said, the 17th right now, because at the time, we were all Rangers in the 17th. Yeah. yeah. Except for 3rd ID uh, Brigade that was supported in the 17th right. as well. But the 17th was primarily Ranger Regiment and 
Patel. Yeah. I said, they go day in and day out. They live, they eat, they sleep with the Rangers. Most of them have been through Ranger school. What is not soft about that? And they go, well, you know, and I go, I've been in special operations now, you know, when I was having these discussions for 20 years. I worked for the, I was a special assistant to the SYNC SOCOM, the four star in charge of all of special operations. The 23rd Air Force at Herbert Field, Fort Bragg, JSOC. All, I go, they are more special operations than I can think of. But without our guys proving it, that would have all, you know, people would have uh, blown me off. Yeah. I mean, they would have. But you can't blow off a warrior that saves people's lives, helps win wars, and a proven hero. You, you can't turn that down. I mean, you know, I, I don't care who you are, right, what service right. you're from, what rank you ever have or anything. You, can, you can't turn that down. You can't turn that down. That's... Yeah. Um, that's absolute. And so the story about Shaq Boshane was really simple because after 9-11, the 5th Special Forces Group, as you know, got a task uh, to go over through Uzbekistan mm -hmm. to do operations in Afghanistan. And uh, we sent over uh, two small little elements, one from the 22nd ASOF. It was a light yep. that worked directly for me at the 18th ASOF. And then parts of the 17th, okay, that would, you know, so we took a little slice here, a little slice here, and sent them. Like, we almost sent them without deployment orders, and that's a, a no-no. You actually can't send <laughs> right. someone to combat without an order. Uh, but we had to fix that rapidly, but you know, we were in, sure, sure. we got them over there. So I went to visit them and I go, you guys are great. You ready to go? We're ready to go. We're doing this. We're going to, you know, Tim Stamey's going down range, you know, uh, Steve Tomat's going to go down range. Okay. 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 All right. Um, uh, Rock Davis is, is going to sit in the talk and he's going to, okay. All right. All right. Um, you need more guys and you need more stuff. Well, sir, we're, uh, no, you need more guys. You need more stuff. Um, I love you. Keep doing it. Keep going. It's combat. Boom. Go. Let me talk to the Fiscal Forces Group Commander. And I've known him for a long time. Great. Great commander. Uh, and hero. And I said, hey, John, this is John Mulholland. I said, hey, John, uh, I've given you a lot of good guys. I need to give you more. And I need to give you some aviators. He goes, L.A. <laughs> no. <laughs> I go, yeah. He goes, no. I mean, in private, this is how commanders talk. We talk just like everybody else. <laughs> Right. In the public, we we say nice things, appropriate things, you know, deployment. Sure, sure. But when we're in private, we talk just like everybody else. Yeah. No, LA. Yeah. Damn it, 
Yes, you do. You need them. No, I don't. Yes, you do. And now, John Mulholland, if you know, he's a big man. Okay, oh, yeah. I, I'm kind of a little guy. You know, I mean, compared to him. And he was, sure. you know, he's got he, big. No, no, I don't need more stuff. I need, you know, I said, well. <laughs> Okay, we just kind of got frustrated in the in the actual talk. We were actually in the talk, and you know, so he got a little frustrated. I got frustrated. Uh-huh. I get on the horn, and I go, I call back. I go, hey, Shaq, pack your bags, get your stuff, get on the airplane, get your ass over here immediately. No deployment order. No nothing. <laughs> My vote yeah. Get here now. Now, why did I choose Shaq? I chose Shaq because I'd heard the 10th Mountain was going to follow. There were going to be the kind of conventional land force that was going to come in a little later. Uh, you know, Shaq had been telling me that he had been trying to prep the 10th Mountain for a, a, de- a deployment. The 10th Mountain right. was saying, we don't need TACP. Yeah, see, everybody, you know, everybody's got great war stories. But to know how it really happened, how it really no shit happened, it's it's another thing. So tenth of was telling yeah. us. Of course, now historically they'll go back and oh that's not. yeah it is true. They told <laughs> us no, we don't want you tack P. My message to Tenth Mountain at the time was, I don't understand this. You're taking yeah, people yeah. that can shoot down airplanes. You know their air defense, they can against yeah, yeah. battery or platoon or something they were taking air defense i said but you can shoot down airplanes but you can't talk to them so any planes you're going to shoot down have usa somewhere on the tail so that makes no sense to me and i'm not a rocket scientist it makes no sense so shack was going through that with 10th mountain they're not listening to you. They basically blew you off. I said, I know. I, people have blown me off my entire career. That's okay. Um, it, it, my feelings aren't hurt. I, I don't get That's not how I work. I don't get my feelings. If my feelings were hurt, I'd never have done anything. Okay? Because right. I was always told no operationally. Always. Always. Some, something is no. Can't do this. Mm-hmm. So I go... If they come, they're coming to Bagram or Kandahar. They're going to come. You know, I didn't know exactly the force flow for the Army. I said, but I I guessed at it. I go, it's going to happen. And then when they get here, they'll go, hey, where are our Air Force guys? You know, the same guys that said, no, you can't come. I I kept hearing the same kind of stuff over and over and over again. It, It drives me insane. Who know mm-hmm. me know that I get really, I I get when I start telling these stories, I get so emotional about it, and I have to calm down. Uh, so I, I'll try to do that. But that's why I picked Shaq Boshane because he was the 20th ASOS commander and was supporting at Fort Drum, supporting the 10th Mount, and he was my at the time my most experienced combat commander. He had been in Desert okay. Storm, okay. And was with the um, sixth. Anyway, I can't. I can't remember the French. Anyway, he was with the big curve, 
uh, and you okay a, a, a combat alo, you know. So, um, and he was an all around great guy, you know, fighter guy. I go, Shaq Boshane is the guy, and so he arrives, and Mulholland didn't say anything; just let him, you know. Uh, now, I go back. And then two weeks later, I come back after Shaq's been there and I come back to see, you know, the fruits of my labor, if you will. All right. And John Mulholland grabs me. And this is what he says to me. Remember, he's a big guy. Yeah. L.A. Remember, just two weeks prior, he said, no way in hell. Then he says, L.A., you're never going to get him back. 